Good morning, and I welcome you here. We're happy for all the visitors we see among us today. We're uh, glad for your presence, and come again when it works for you. So as I look out across you uh, this morning, um, I don't know, I really have a, a relatively low and vague idea of what you all might have done this past week. Um, I don't know the specifics of your life, I guess I would say. But one thing that I think I can probably safely assume is that each one of you engaged in some kind of work this past week. I think that's a safe assumption to make. When I uh, saw that I was going to be having this message today and tomorrow was Labor Day, my mind kind of went to this whole thing of work. You know, we, we spend an awful lot of time in our lives just doing fairly mundane work. Um, and uh, I have already commented to the family, you know, all this work, just so we can have a little something to eat, you know? I mean, it, it feels like there's a lot of circumstance goes with, uh, you know, when you boil down what does man need and uh, the, the work we go to sometimes to, uh, to get that all accomplished. Turn with me to John 6 for just a text here this morning, John 6. I kind of did a little research on... Um, on where this Labor Day thing came from. There's some indication that a man by the name of Peter McGuire in 1882, he was a general secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners, and he suggested that a day should be set apart, and this, this is his quote, a general holiday for the laboring class to honor those who have from rude nature delved and carved all the grandeur that we behold. So in other words, this uh, this Peter, this Mr. McGuire, he thought that it would be becoming to have a holiday to, um, to um, honor people that do humble labor in this country. And uh, in his opinion, it was those humble laborers that, um, that produced all the, in his words, grandeur that we behold. <clears throat> Let's read um, verses uh, 26 and 27 of uh, John 6 here for just a text. Jesus saith un- answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth. But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Now, for a little context here, if you go back earlier in the, in the chapter, you have the uh, the multitude that Jesus fed, the 5,000 we call it. And uh, then uh, you have, uh, uh, because of this, there was a few people in verse 14 that thought maybe they would make Jesus a king, and they uh, they thought maybe they would try to do that. That didn't work out. Jesus um, departed, it says. He part- departed alone into a mountain to pray. Then there was uh, the event where Jesus walks on the sea. We're familiar with that. And um, after that, the next day after the feeding of the 5,000, we have this, this, this multitude of people that are hunting for Jesus, and they found him. And Jesus has what almost 
sounds like a rebuke to these people. He said, you know, you're hunting me for the wrong reasons. He said, your bellies were filled yesterday because of my miracles. And he says, um, that's not really the reason you should be seeking me. He said, you're, you're way more interested in the temporal than the eternal. And he challenges the people there to refocus and, uh, and to, uh, look, look beyond loaves and fishes. And I had to think as I was, as I read these verses, would Jesus say the same thing to me? As he observes me, and you can ask yourself this question, do you suppose Jesus would give you the same rebuke? Um, that we are laboring for the things that are, that perish. I'm not sure. Um, I did have to think about this. How do we make sense of this verse, and how do we rightly apply it? Does that mean we should just quit working? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, I think we could conclude that that's not that's not what he was saying. Should we become minimalist? I, uh, I was interested. I was talking to a fellow farmer here in the area a while back, and at one time this man was milking multiple hundreds of cows, and he was he was doing pretty big things and. And he was telling me how that he has really refocused and he had cut his herd, I think, pretty much back to a quarter or less than what it had been at a time. And, um, and, you know, he was really pulling his horns in. And, uh, one of the comments he made is one of the reasons he was doing this is because his sons for a while had been helping him, but he just couldn't get his sons to, um, Grab the bull by the horns. They, they just, they just weren't interested. They didn't have the interest that they needed to, to really, you know, it takes a bit of dedication to be a dairy farmer, right? And they just didn't have that. You know, if they didn't feel like showing up to milk, they didn't. Well, then he's left with all this work. And, um, so I questioned him a little bit what his son is doing currently. Well, he said he's, he's working at Casey's. Uh, that's interesting. Different, uh, different uh, little uh, thing from milking cows, I guess. Nothing wrong with that. But then he made this comment. He said he's a minimalist. That's what he is. He, he just wants to just get get a paycheck. He just wants to live over here in an apartment and, and you know just drive a, a flunky car and just get by. Just get by. That's it. Does that make him more godly than me? I mean, I, this man is not a godly person, but I, I was interested in how this man worded it. He's a minimalist. Should we be minimalist? Is that is that the way we should look at life? I also find it interesting, going back to uh, Mr. McGuire and his, uh, his thing about a general holiday for the laboring class. That was about 150 years ago now. And, uh, you know, today, ironically... Almost every potential employer complains they cannot find reliable help. People want to do as little as they can to get by, but they want to be paid top-shelf wages for what they do. They feel their contribution is, uh, is worth that. And uh, if there's a job that requires any kind of rigorous labor or timeliness or common routine, uh, that's largely snubbed today. That's that's basically handed over to uh, immigrant labor. And so thus we find things like custodians and carpenters and roofers and farm labor and these kinds of things. That's pretty much who does that work for us anymore. 
I think this is somewhat symptomatic of an evolving ideal in our society of the expectations of what the good life should be. I remembered that uh, there was a president that had a campaign slogan that went like this, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. That was his that was his goal. That was that, that is what he he his stated vision for the country when he was running for president. By the way, does anybody know who that was? Just a little history class here. Uh, that was Herbert Hoover, uh, 1928. That that is what he he ran on. And um, the research I did um, said that he wanted to his his. Uh, well, you know, politicians are what they are, and I don't want this to get political. But he was a Republican, and, and that statement seemed more Democrat, right? But he wanted to he wanted to put forth a um, a, uh, a statement that that sounded like he was interested in, in people and in and in the welfare of people. So that's what that's what he that's that was his a statement that you often heard. He wanted a chicken in everybody's pot and a car in their garage, enough food wealth that the population could share and participate in the benefits of society. But here's the interesting thing. It was still expected that you would have to work for that. He did not say, I'll give you a chicken for your pot and a car for your garage. It was just a given that you would still have to work for that. Interestingly enough, um, roughly a year after he was elected president, October 24, 1929, what happened? The stock market crashed. It crashed. And it didn't come back till about a decade and a half later. So this, uh, this stated goal of uh, Herbert Hoover was somewhat of an poss- impossibility for many. But if you go forward about 15 years, I would say through the 30s and mid-40s, um, the the country was pretty much um, pretty much in in the doldrums. The, the 30s were very poor times economically and, and even agriculturally. A lot of a lot of drought and that sort of thing going on. And then we had uh, World War II that started in 1939 and lasted till 1945. And during that time, the the American the American thrust was if you were a good American, you were thrifty and you saved. I mean, it was all about the war effort, you know. Uh, none of us really lived through those times, but that's what I understand. It was, you know, everybody was rallying around this 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 war in, a, in our society, anyway. And um, after the war, the U.S. was poised to make a very good uh, comeback from the uh, from the belt tightening that it experienced during those times. And uh, they did that. Uh, Europe was devastated by the war, and there was uh, many new inventions that had come along because of the war and the military machinery and so on, that now were looking for uses in the general society. And so you put those two things together, and and coupled with a group of people that knew how to work and could work, and you have yourself set up for... um, some roaring times. And so the roaring 20s came roaring back about the mid-40s. And about the mid-40s through, I don't know, pick your date, from that time forward, for sure through the 50s, 60s, and middle 70s anyway, very, very prosperous economic times for the uh, for the American populace. 
There was a time that uh, what was expected out of life um, became more than um, than what had previously been known in other generations. Nice houses, modern conveniences, um, the availability of entertainment and amusements to the uh, modern suburbanites in that time. It made life much less about just existence and much more about indulgence. I would suggest that at the same time, the cultural appreciation for many biblical virtues was waning as the appetite for a posh lifestyle was gaining steam. And I would say that really picked up steam in probably the 60s would be my, would be my take on it. I think there is also a, a strange um, change in the perception of what the reason for government was. Government had largely been understood um, in, uh, in historical times as an entity that was there to execute basic responsibilities such as protecting citizens and keeping civil order. Well, that, that changed, and uh, it became much more of an entity that was there to guarantee that you have a good life. And um, way back as far as 1935, uh, Franklin Roosevelt who uh, began to instate many, many social programs, um, his statement about Social Security went like this. This is an act to provide for the general welfare by establishing a system of federal old age benefits and by enabling several states to make more adequate provision for aged persons, blind persons, dependent and crippled children, maternal and child welfare, public health, and the administration of their unemployment. Now, when you think about that, that sounds like the church's job, doesn't it? It sounds like it. But as church became less important, uh, the federal government took up these, these things that at one time would have been the church's job. Well, however that may be, this was embraced by many, I would dare say. And this evolving understanding of the role of government in society came to a point where we now find ourselves where the government is expected to make sure you have a good life. That's, you know, to put it in just blunt language, I would say that's kind of where we are. And unfortunately, the generation we live in has looked and found ways to milk that system to the absolute max. Now, I'll just give you an example. Uh, this past year, as you well know, uh, the covid um, stuff has um, has uh, just just uh, exponentially um, made way for many 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 government handouts, and the industry that I'm involved in, the ag industry, has not been immune to that. And last year, one of the COVID farm relief payouts. Whatever it was, you just, you just wrote down how many tons of corn silage you had, how many, how many bull calves you sold, how many call cows you sold from this date to this date. And then you could go to the FSA office and you could cash in on that. And I had a, uh, a farmer that unashamedly told me, he said, if I had 400 ton of corn silage, you can bet I put down 450. He said, if they're paying out, they can pay out. And I just cringed when I heard that. There was there was no way to there was no way to police that. 
And so there was much advantage taken of that, of that particular program, at least if he has any indication of what everybody else did. Hopefully everybody else was honest, but just saying that is the current state that we live in, and I, I think this happens in many, many different, different ways, but that's just one example. I think it's interesting that as our culture has become and is becoming more godless, the view of what work is and should be is equally corrupted. It, it seems that way. I was reading a, uh, a, um, a little opinion page on this in a paper I get yesterday, and uh, this man, this, this writer, made mention of, the, of an Occupy Wall Street event. Remember those things way back in like 2012? Occupy Wall Street. So at this event in May of 2012, there was a man walking around with a placard that it, it said like this, if you have to work to live, is it a choice? All right, so that's the question. If you have to work to live, is it a choice? And if it's not a choice, are you free? Now you stop and think about that a little bit. What this man was saying is, that if you have to work to exist, that you are somehow in bondage. And that is so far from the godly concept of work that again, it just, it, it, it just shows where ideas will take a person whenever you take away biblical concepts and you begin to, uh, to, uh, look at life through a different lens than what the Bible, what the Bible shows us. I would like to, this morning, look at seven principles that I think the Bible teaches that I think we do well to consider when it comes to this thing of a work and where we fit into that. I'll just say this too. I'm glad to say that I'm speaking to a group of people that I think have a godly view of work. I really think that. Like, I don't think there's anybody here this morning I wouldn't perceive that is just looking for a way to milk the government system and figuring out a way that they don't have to work and so on and so on. That's not the group of people that I'm, that I'm speaking to this morning. I'm fairly certain of that. Turn with me to Genesis 1 for the, uh, for the first um, principle I would like to talk about. Genesis 1, very, um, very familiar scripture that... Um, it's the creation story. And it, it says in, um, well, let's go to chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and the host of them. And the seventh day God ended his work. All right? So I, there's three things that I see here in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first one I say is I see is that God modeled work. Now, I don't know how much work it is to speak something and the thing comes into existence, but it was called work, all right? He said he ended his work. And even before the fall, if you go to, um, let's see, where is that verse that I'm looking for? Uh, Chapter 2 and verse, um, hmm, I didn't write that down, but there's a verse in here in chapter 2. That it says that uh, the the Lord God put man in a, in the garden to dress and to keep it. All right. So this was before the fall. That um, that Adam was expected 
to dress and keep this garden. And I don't know what that must have entailed because everything was perfect. We know there was no thorns and thistles or anything like that. But whatever it was, it must have been fairly fun work, I would imagine. I, I don't know whether it was... Um, I don't know what it was. We just won't even speculate. But it, but Adam was to keep occupied, okay? God had modeled work, and he expected Adam to work as well. Now, this was greatly marred when we go into chapter 3, and we have this, this whole fall of man, we call it, where the, the serpent came, tempted Eve, and both Adam and Eve partook of this fruit that they should not. And if you go over to verses 17 to 19 of chapter 3, especially uh, verses 18 and 19, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth, talking about the, the ground, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread, till thou return into the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and to, to dust thou shalt return. So apparently Adam didn't even sweat before he, the fall, apparently, because now God said part of this thing is you're going to be tugging on those thorns and thistles and you're going to sweat while you're doing it too. Well, I can easily believe that because I don't enjoy sweating while I work. I realize it's the, the body's way of of uh, keeping me cool, but when it's like hot and you're doing hot work and the sweat's just a pouring over the face, not exactly a fun situation. So there we have it. Uh, we have um, we have God modeling work and Him expecting man to work even after the fall. He's like, things are going to get way worse, but you're still going to have to work at it. So it's honorable to work. The other thing here is I see is. Um, God also modeled in the, the creation account, and maybe this is a stretch here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest this. I think God modeled moderation. I know enough about God. Um, I think I do. Stephen's teaching us more about that in prayer meeting, how God thinks about things. But I believe that Stephen would agree with me that if God would have chosen to, he could have said, one, two, three, everything come forth at one time, and it would have happened. Boom. The earth, the sky, the sun, the fish, the frogs, the everything would have been there instantaneously. He could have done that. But for some reason, he didn't do that. He made this on this day, and then the next day he did this, and the following day he did the next thing, and he did that for six days. Was God modeling moderation to mankind in spreading the creation over six days? The Bible doesn't necessarily say that, but I think it would be a... A, um, a conclusion that one could perhaps reach. He paced himself when he worked. I had to think of the verse in Psalm 127 too. It goes like this. It is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. I'm going to read that in another version. It is vain for you to rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. All right. Let's just condense that verse to say that I think that verse is saying that if you begin to burn the candle at both ends, like we talk about, and you do that for too long, it's going to catch up to you. It's not going to work out just real well for you. You know, sometimes we need to push it. We do. Uh, there's the old adage, make hay while the sun shines. That was easy to do this year. Many years in Minnesota, that's not easy. You got a small window of time and you gotta, you gotta push it while you can. So there's, we understand that. But I would like to suggest that as godly people, that we learn to pace ourselves. Maybe we should take a few lessons from our Latin American neighbors. 
We'll do that tomorrow. Now, you can get carried away with that too, can't you? Lastly, in this, uh, in these first two chapters, God modeled rest. It says that, um, chapter two, verse three, God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it because in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Was God tired? Do you think God was tired? Do you think that's why he made that seventh day? Not only God was tired, was he? God was again modeling something to man. He modeled rest. And he, I just think it's so interesting that there's not very many things in the Bible that God actually gave us the example by actually doing it himself. But this he did. He modeled rest. He rested. We, we have to go to Exodus 20 to read about the Sabbath day again, but I'm going to read a few verses out of Exodus 20 that I think, again, give, give God's take on the Sabbath day. He says in Exodus 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All right, let's stop there. What's that mean? That means that God knew that people would tend to forget how to keep the Sabbath day. He said, remember, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Then in verse 9, he says, Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. A person could easily come to the conclusion that God's saying, I do expect you to work six days, but do it in the six days. Then in verse 10, he goes, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger, which is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Basically, in a nutshell, that's saying, if God was able to get his work done in six days, we can too. He expects us to get it done in six days as well. You know, you could uh, you could make the argument, and some people try, that, the, you know, this was Old Testament law here. This We're talking Old Testament. We now live in a time of grace. We have a different thing going on in the New Testament, that the uh, Sabbath laws were not are not expected to be kept in the New Testament. There's a degree of truth to that, a degree. Indeed, we do live in the New Testament. There was a man that was found picking up sticks in the Old Testament, and the people came to Moses and said, what should we do with this man? And Moses inquired of the Lord. The Lord said he should be stoned, so they stoned him. We don't do that today. Somebody works on, on the Sabbath day, we do not stone them. But I want to ask you a question. What's the primary difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? If you boil it down, Jeremiah says the primary difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant would be in the New Covenant, the law would be written on the hearts of men rather than on tablets of stone. Thus, the motivation for doing, keeping the law changes. It is now motivated from your heart. It is now motivated because you have a changed spirit within you. Now, rather than than uh, refraining from uh, committing adultery with somebody else's wife on pain of punishment, 
an execution, you now refrain from doing that because you have no desire to do that because of a changed heart. Now, rather than just refraining from killing someone, you don't even hate someone because of a changed heart. I'm going to suggest that the same principle applies here. We refrain from working on Sunday, the Lord's Day, because our hearts are changed. We want to honor God. We want to honor God. We want to honor his, his principle that he laid out in, uh, in creation. And we do it because it is a delight. In Isaiah 58, 13 and 14, if thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, and I understand this is Old Testament, but I think the principle still applies. From doing thy pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable and shall honor him not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. So if that's what you'll do, God then says, Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord God has spoken it. It shouldn't surprise us that our culture's dismissal of one day of rest in a week is linked closely to the decline of appreciation for biblical values in general. In summary, I would say this. For our work to honor God, our observance of creation rest must honor him as well. The idea of refraining from work on the Christian Sabbath day is not God's is not man's invention. It is God's idea. Principle number two. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes nine. The books of uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes have a lot of things to say about work. We're not going to nearly touch them all. Ecclesiastes nine verse ten. Read this verse. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. The second principle I see here in the Bible is the principle of expected industry. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. You know, I don't think there's really an occupation that is more godly than another. Now, inside the the obvious definition that we're not going to do things that are blatantly forbidden in the Bible or that are harmful to humankind. With that in parentheses, um, I don't think the fact that Davy sells furniture and Gary drives truck means that one is better than the other. It just means that they're doing what their hand has found to do. I think it's okay to do work that one has interest and talents in. I think that's I think that's what this verse is saying. Whatever your hand finds to do. So find something to do and uh, and do it with your might. I think it's uh while it's not at all wrong and probably advisable to engage in work that we enjoy, all jobs come with a, a downside. Every job has its downside. And when you're working through the downside of your job, do it with as much might as when you're doing something that you thoroughly enjoy. Attitude makes a huge difference in life, doesn't it? 
You know, many people through the halls of time worked in a system where they had absolutely no choice in what they did. Think of slavery. If you're a slave, you're told what to do, how long to do it, and how you will do it. If, uh, if you lived in the feudal system back in the mid, Middle Ages, um, you were born a servant and you stayed a servant and you died a servant and you worked for the king on the hill and that was that. All right? If you're born in a communist country, a very repressive regime, much the same. Does this verse not apply there? If I'm a slave, do I still work with my might? I'm going to suggest that we do. Although I have to admit, I've never been a slave. I will admit that. That's never happened to me, and I don't think it's been a part of your experience either. But whatever we do, let's do it with our might. That's what God expects us to do, to work diligently with, with, with industry. Principle number three. And I see this in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 11. Um, If you want to just flip back a few pages, we'll read that verse. Then I looked on all the works of my hands that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. I called this the principle of the futility of mixed directed ambition. You know, labor that is only done to consume what that labor produces on ourselves will ultimately prove meaningless and will be to our spiritual loss. And if you read through Ecclesiastes, you find this. That's that's basically the theme of the verse. You know, I did all these things. I accumulated all this stuff. I enjoyed everything life had to offer. And I found at the end of the day, it did not satisfy. It didn't. In fact, he concludes toward the end of the end of the book that you know when it, when you boil it all out, the man that's the most happy is the person that fears God and keeps His commandments. I couldn't help but think of the uh, rich man in the in the New Testament that uh, had a big crop and he decided he was going to tear down his barns and build bigger. And um, the Lord, the, he died that night. The way the parable goes. You know, it does not say that this man was not a diligent man. He was a diligent man, I do believe. Um, And I don't see anywhere in the Bible that it says that if your barn isn't big enough that you shouldn't build a bigger one. I don't know that's necessarily not a spiritual or scriptural thing to do. However, the problem with that man was in his statement that he will say to himself, soul, I have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That was the man's problem. He was a very indulgent man. Let's not be that way. Principle number four, and the next, the next few come from the New Testament. If you turn to Matthew 6, very familiar verses here. You probably quote him by memory out of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of the opposite of, uh, of the last point. Matthew 6, 19, 20, and 21. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. 
For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The principle that I'd like to to give comes from that verse. The principle of godly focus. So Jesus is not saying here that we shouldn't work. You catch that? Neither is he saying that we should not get something for our labor. He just says, once you get that, make sure you're investing it properly. We can still work. We can still work hard. But invest the fruit of your labors where it really counts. I think it is very appropriate that every Sunday we uh, receive an offering at church. I think it's very appropriate. I think that is a way that you can put something in your heavenly savings account. All right, I think it is. I had to think of the widow and her two mites that Jesus observed with the disciples one day. And there's many lessons that we could learn from that. But think of it this way. That widow knew that all she had was two mites. And those two mites were not going to go very far. But she said, I'm going to give those two mites, I'm going to put them in a savings account that I know they'll be there. They will not escape. In fact, they'll multiply in ways that I can't make a multiply on this earth. And so she threw them in there that day, and Jesus had much commendation for her investment. Principle number five, the principle of contentment. Turn with me to 1 Timothy for this one. Again, very, very familiar verses. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Hebrews 13.5 says something very similar. Let your conversation be without covetousness. In other words, keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with such things as you have. For he saith, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You know, I think we have to cultivate the virtue of contentment in the society that we live. You know, if we do that, if we can do that, it's going to free us from this working ourselves silly craze to support an upper middle class human American lifestyle. And it's going to free up resources for the kingdom of God. I had to ask myself the question, do we at Prairie Church, do I as Dwight Burkholder and his family, do I live an indulgent lifestyle? Could somebody, could somebody observe me or could someone observe you and your family and accuse you um, rightly of living indulgently? And then I had to ask myself the question, am I even in a, in a, in a place where I could even come up with the right answer? You know, like the, the old worn out um, question, can, can a fish describe water? He's never been out of the water. He doesn't know. He doesn't know anything but water. So how can he describe life out of water? How can I describe life outside of living in the richest country in the world? But I did think of this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this simply for your thought, okay? Simply for your thought, nothing more than that. So, in the day that we live here, especially among us as uh, good, hardworking Christian people, we like coffee, don't we? Most of us enjoy coffee 
pretty, maybe too much. And it seems to be the craze these days that uh, not only shall we drink coffee, we shall go to a coffee shop to do so. So I just Googled, Google the uh, all-powerful know-it-all system that it is. An average cup of coffee at a coffee shop is three bucks. And if you go to a gourmet coffee shop, you could up that to four twenty-two. All right. So now let's just, for the sake of an example, let's be conservative. Let's say that we're conservative with the cups of Joe that we buy at coffee shops, and we're only paying two fifty for them. Okay, we're gonna we're under average, but we're at two fifty. And we drink two of these every week. So five bucks a week. So we do this for 52 weeks in a year, and we come up with $260 in a year that we have just drank up as coffee. Now, according to Google, we can make our own home brew for 16 to 18 cents a cup. All right? Now, let's be liberal here, and let's say we drink good coffee, so it's going to cost us 25 cents. Okay, we'll, we'll go on the high side of this like we went on the low side of the other. Again, you do the math, 52 weeks in a year. You're at $26 to drink good coffee out of your own mug at home. And this is good coffee now. Okay. Not to mention all the waste that is produced when we're drinking coffee at coffee shops what do we do? We drink it out of a styrofoam cup. We have um, you know, a plastic spoon that comes with it and all this stuff, and it tosses it, we toss it into the trash can, and we contribute to the very throwaway society that we live in. But back to back to my um, my little dollars here. The difference between those two scenarios I gave you is $234. Okay? Now let's just suppose that there's 50 adults here in this auditorium that could find some um, habit that they have that would be the equivalent of drinking two cups of coffee from a coffee shop every week. Do you realize that 50 times 234 is $11,700? Do, do you suppose that each one of us could find some habit that is the equivalent of what I just gave that we could give up and we could come up with $11,700 for the kingdom of God, perhaps, just using that for an example. How many Bibles would that put in China? Uh, how far would that go to some school teacher's salary? Y- you name it. I- I- I'm just saying, we get, is it possible that we get caught up in laboring for the things that perish and the same time we cheat God? Let's leave that one. Let's go to the last two principles real quick. The principle of unselfishness, Ephesians 4.28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may give to him that needeth. Very self-explanatory. When we become Christians and we allow God to work in our lives, suddenly our working with our hands becomes, I like to do this because I want to give it away. I want to give to somebody that needs. Uh, who can't read that verse and not think about Barnabas? when he was converted there in uh, in uh, Acts, and it said he had a piece of property and he sold it and he brought it to the apostles' feet. In 2 Corinthians 8, you can read that sometime, Paul's talking about the virtue of giving. And he calls it, he says to the Corinthians, he said, I want to see this grace abound in you. I want to see you get really good at it, he says. 
A sharing heart, I believe, brings incredible value and meaning to labor. And suddenly we are not laboring for things that perish. And the last principle, I believe labor, Christian labor, brings an incredible opportunity for gospel witness. Do you know you don't have to be a missionary to be a missionary? Think of the business owner Dorcas in the Bible. When she died, now I believe Dorcas made money sewing. It would insinuate that she did. But she was also known for giving stuff away to the widows and so on. She was a very generous seamstress, it would seem. Folks, there are so many ways that in our mundane tasks we can incorporate the gospel into it. I'm going to give you two real quick. If you are an employer, we should read Colossians 4.1 and pay close attention to it. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. If you have an employee or several employees, has your master in heaven been just and equal with you? Has he been? He's been far more than just and equal. If he would be just and equal with us, we wouldn't have too much. But if we're using that as our example, probably all of our employees are going to get a pay raise this week, right? That's a tall order. Now, what about if I'm an employee? The same book, servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of your inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Work like God is your boss. Work like he's your boss. Do it cheerfully. Do it willingly. Speak respectfully of him or her. John the Baptist told the soldiers when they said, what shall we do? He said, be content with your wages. Just be quiet. Quit complaining. You know, I am refreshed. And occasionally I'll hear this. I am refreshed when I talk to somebody, I encounter somebody I never, I never, I never knew before. And almost immediately the conversation will go to, well, what do you do? And then the person says, well, you know, I do this or that. And then he will make a comment, and this has happened already, and he'll say, you know, it's one of the best jobs I ever had. You know, and, and he, and he goes on to tell you all the good things about where he works. Now that is so unusual, so different from what you usually hear. Usually it's like, ah, you know, boss is a crab and whatever and stingy and da da da. You know the drill. That's so refreshing. How do people know us? I'm going to leave you with this verse. Jesus said in Luke 16, 11, If therefore you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, okay, and in that verse, unrighteous mammon is earthly business. So if therefore you have not been faithful in earthly business, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Did you ever think about that? The way you approach your job, the way you do it, the attitude you have toward it, the contentment you have with it, that is actually somewhat of a barometer of how much of the true riches God can give you, can entrust to you. We're going to end it with that. Between now and Labor Day 2022, if the Lord tarries, I would like to encourage us to use our labor to intentionally build the kingdom of God. 
I think God will be glorified and I think you and I will find new purpose in our jobs.